This morning, uh, we'll be in Matthew 18, if you want to grab your Bible and turn to that chapter. When I started preaching um, in earnest, when my preaching ministry got underway, it was either 2012 or 2013, I don't remember. I had preached a lot before that, but started preaching regularly then and simultaneously took over the youth ministry at my last church, I thought, well, this is an opportunity to go out and buy a new Bible because you're, you're kind of starting this whole new series of um, ministries and you don't want to start with an old and tattered Bible. So I just want to point out that this morning I have a new Bible. And the reason that I went ahead and got it is because I just, I'm convinced that we're starting something new here, and I'm hopeful that this Bible will be worn out before we're done. I hope that uh, that's encouraging to all of you. But it has the same words in it, so not to worry. (laughs) Um, Let me pray, and then we're going to read 21 through 35. Father, we love you. Because you first loved us. And we sing and worship because you, by the work of Jesus Christ, have made us worshipers in spirit and in truth. But we know there are some here this morning who don't know you, who do not believe, who maybe used to believe but are struggling, who have never believed and don't want to. So not all of us can, can call you Father. So I pray this morning, after we've prayed, after we've sung, after we've read your word, that you would be pleased by your Holy Spirit to reach down and just touch the hearts of those who don't know you. For the rest of us, we're about to get kicked around this morning. And um, we, we need soft hearts and necks that are not stiff so that we can hear from you and our lives can be a reflection of our faith because we change the way that we think and the way that we act to be in accordance with what you've commanded. Jesus, we thank you for your work. We love you and it's for your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21 says, then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him. He began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. 
He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. All right. Uh, Let's answer some questions. For starters, are some sins worse than others? There's debate, uh, depending on who you ask, what, what Christian might say in answer to that question. But what the Bible clearly teaches is, yes, some sins are worse than others. In uh, Romans 3.23, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, is all sin sin? Yes. Is the consequence for any sin ultimately, in one sense, the same? Yes. Death. Right? So in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve commit the relatively trivial transgression of eating from a tree that God had forbidden, they incur the same judgment as Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin and Jeffrey Dahmer and we all will. The penalty for sin is always and always will be death okay so all sin is sin all sin leads to death but jesus had some clear teaching on the doctrine of degrees of punishment and reward so i'm going to read you a few passages if you can just listen i think we'll be helped to understand why i say some sins are worse than others luke 20 um i think i meant 45 through 27 or 47 now i have to go look Yeah, it's 45 through 47 says, In the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best, best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. Greater than who? Well, I suppose then the people that don't do that. So some sins must be worse than others. What makes a sin worse than another sin? And here's where, again, there's more debate. So even if we could all agree, yep, some sins are worse than others. Once we got to the subject of, okay, well, which ones are worse? There'd be great debate because there are those in this room who would be like, well, yours is worse because it grosses me out. And there are those who would say my own is worse because I'm a navel gazing, self-effacing, self-destructive, not grace appreciating, lost sinner, right? There is an objective standard for what makes one sin worse than another. So let's look together at Luke chapter 12. Preaching in the year 2021, um, the ability to just listen for when pages stop turning to decide it's safe to start reading is gone. I have to look and see 
if somebody's still tapping or scrolling. And they might be playing Pokemon Go, so it, I may be looking at the wrong person. Although I doubt very much that Cecil is. In fact, I can see his Bible. <clears throat> Luke 12, verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling us this parable for all or just us? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Don't tune out. Stay with me. 44. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant who's entrusted with something, a servant's been entrusted with something, says to himself, my master is going to be gone a long time and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant, look real close at 47, that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Jesus lays out this principle that you've got two servants who are supposed to be looking after their master's house. Now, all of our teenagers eventually will have some experience with dog sitting or house sitting or babysitting, right? And the picture that Jesus paints is there's one servant who's managing his master's house while his master is away who knows exactly what he should be doing. He's been told, this is what you've been entrusted with. These are the tasks that need to be done every day. And he just doesn't do it. In fact, he starts beating his fellow servants and drinking all the master's booze. And the master comes back and the punishment for that servant, because he knew what he should have been doing and wasn't doing it, is severe. There's another servant who just kind of, his master apparently disappears one day. And so the servant just like does the best he can, but he has no idea what he should be doing and fails to do the job. So he's also going to get beat, but it won't be as severe. What made the beating more severe for the first servant is what he knew. What makes one sin worse than another ultimately is what the sinner knew when they chose to engage in the sin. In Matthew 11, <clears throat> Jesus denounces some cities. Um, he denounces Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he says that their judgment is going to be more severe than Tyre, Sidon, and Gomorrah, or Sodom. And the reason that their judgment is going to be more severe becomes apparent as he's talking about the judgment that they're going to endure. He says, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you, and you, Capernaum, you exalted to heaven, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Well, where's Capernaum? That's where Jesus rolled around and had a lot of his ministry. You guys know that, right? Bethsaida, same thing. It's what those people knew that's going to make their judgment worse. Just for sake of discussion, I take that literally and I know for a fact, if you go to where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be, if you go there right now, nothing grows there. 
and there is brimstone that you can light on fire embedded yards deep in the soil that you can still find. Tons of it. So God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah that's given to us in, I think, Genesis 19, pretty severe, pretty thorough. And he's saying it's going to be worse for you Jews who, who had the Son of God walking and talking and teaching and praying and healing in your midst than it was going to be for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You following with me so far? Somebody better say amen. amen. All right, good. So willful sin in light of the gospel is worse than unwitting sin in the, in the absence of gospel truth. That's what makes it worse. So let's take some time now to look at the pharisaical position when it comes to the subject of uh, injuries between people. Um, I should talk about why I even want to bring that up. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm bringing this up because one of my, one of my favorite things to do is identify how the modern church is pharisaical. Because we read our Bibles and we look at the Pharisees and we go, ew. But the fact of the matter is, anytime you're reading your Bible and you go, ew, odds are you're looking in a little bit of a mirror there, which is why it bothers you. So how are we like the Pharisees? That's a question that I'm often trying to answer. So what I want to look at is the pharisaical position on what we should do when somebody in the church sins against us. Right? And this is basically how it worked. Um, back up in Matthew 18 to verse 15 and see what, what precipitated this whole discourse between Jesus and Peter. A little while ago, we read 21 through 35. Now we're moving backwards to 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus, prior to Peter's question, remember Peter's question, hey, how often do I have to forgive my brother? Prior to that, Jesus had been talking about how we deal with sin in the context of the body in general, right? So the picture is this. There's somebody in the church doing something that's either clearly prohibited in Scripture or is maybe more generally prohibited in Scripture, but it's going to bring shame on the name of Jesus Christ or shame on the gospel or make the church look bad because of the way that they're behaving. You see that they're doing this. What Matthew 18, 15 prescribes is you go to them one-on-one. -on -one, you confront them with what you've seen by yourself so that you can preserve their reputation and what you're doing will actually be for their edification, right? Not you see somebody doing it. You nudge the person next to you. You point it out. They nudge the person next to them. You start a new club against that person because of the way they behave. That's not biblical, you're supposed to go to them one-on-one -on -one and deal with it. The next part of the picture is they don't repent. They disagree with you. They say, that's ah, not sin. I have liberty. I get to do whatever I want. So you're supposed to now go and get a reasonable witness, somebody else who's seen the behavior, and go to them together. The idea being, if you can increase the notoriety of the sin, maybe you'll shame them into coming to their senses and repenting. They still don't repent. Now you go to the elders of the church and you say, listen, Garrett, 
has refused to repent over this thing that he's been doing. We've all seen Emily's black eye. We need to deal with this, right? I should reverse that. Emily refuses to repent. We've seen Garrett's black eyes. Now, the elders of the church, along with the witnesses, admonish the person who's in sin to stop. Let's say they still don't repent. Now what the church does is excommunication. And what that looks like, in my opinion, biblically, is that person is no longer allowed to participate in Lord's Supper or serve in the context of the church. Because how do you treat a Gentile or a tax collector in modern terms? You know what I do? I try to preach the gospel to them. So I don't think that shunning is what's commanded in Matthew 18. But, uh, you know, I may be in the minority there. So there's a little bit of context. Jesus teaches this. Peter asks this question, how many times should I forgive my brother for sinning against me? It's worth noting that at no point in verses 15 through 18 does the word you appear. What Jesus says is, if your brother sins, later translations add in this against you, probably because of what we see in 21 through 35. But when Jesus is talking in 15 through 18, he's talking about sin in general, not sin specifically against you. Are you tracking with me? Are we okay? All right, this is all going to make sense momentarily. There is disagreement among biblical scholars about whether or not Jesus is referring to personal sins when he covers the subject of church discipline. I'm bringing it up and making a big deal about it because I think you all need to know where I stand. I think this is one of those important things as we engage in uh, kind of a maybe a new work here and we're relating with one another. You need to know exactly what potentially your pastor thinks. And here's what I think. I do not believe Jesus was talking about uh, personal offenses in verses 15 through 18. And that puts me in the minority of Bible teachers and preachers. Most guys would say, yeah, that's what Jesus is talking about. Personal offenses and other sins. I'm excluding personal offenses. I don't think that's what he was talking about. Second, I'm bringing this up because I do not believe, listen to me, this is really important. You got to decide what you think about this. I do not believe that personal slights should be a matter of church discipline. Said a different way, I believe that personal offenses rarely rise to the level of church discipline. It could happen. And said a third way, I disagree with this idea that you should be quick to take your personal injuries public in general. I don't think if somebody hurts me that I now have a right to go and prosecute a case against them. This is what I believe. The pharisaical teaching on this is more in line, I think, with what modern Bible teachers and preachers would say. The pharisaical position is, if you go look at Amos 2, don't, because we don't have time for that, and I'll get off on a wild tangent. Amos 2, multiple times, God says to the people of Israel, for three transgressions in Springfield, and four. For three transgressions in Omaha, and four. For three transgressions in Ralston and four, I will not revoke judgment. So the Pharisees read that and they went, oh, God doesn't, God will forgive you three times, definitely not four, but three times, 
We don't want to be more magnanimous and forgiving than God is. So therefore, we'll make sure we don't forgive anybody if they sin against us more than three times. That was the pharisaical position. If somebody sins against you once and they come and ask for forgiveness, you forgive them. Twice, they come and ask for forgiveness, you forgive them. Third time, we're in the red line now. This is your last shot. And after that, you're cut off. Now, do we want to say the Pharisees were right about that? Or do we want to say they were probably wrong about that? Yeah. But that's what they taught. Peter takes the Pharisaical position three times. He doubles it. And then he adds one more just to make it the number of perfection. And he says to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. So, you know, we love Peter. Everybody loves Peter. We love Peter because there's part of us that's like, at least he's speaking up and saying something. And there's another part of us that's just entertained because he's a doofus, (laughs) which is me. That's me. I'm Peter. I'm going to ask the question and think that I'm doing quite well by asking it. Right. So you saying seven times then, right, Jesus? Uh, Let's see what Jesus says. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, the ESV, the NIV, the NASB 20, take a little liberty with the Greek here, and they just put in there for you 77 times. The NASB 95, um, the New King James Bible, they, I think, have a more true to the Greek literal translation, which is seven times 70. If you are homeschooled, that's 490. Right? So, can I get a witness? They're not anymore, so they're learning some math now. It's great. I had to use a calculator just to double check myself. At what point am I permitted by God to write your name down and erase it? Is it 77 or is it 490? Or is that not the point? It's not the point. All right, we'll just keep going. You guys just took out like a third of my notes. Good for you. (laughs) Whoever said that's not the point. Got to find a new jumping off spot. All right. So if we've established that the objective isn't to figure out when we can be done with one another, then the next thing that we have to deal with is this issue. What actually constitutes forgiveness? Is that a good question? You guys okay if we answer that? All right, here we go. For years, for years, pretty much my whole ministerial life, so we got to go back to 2004, I have believed and I have taught transactional forgiveness. I'm going to explain that in just a second, but let me clarify and say I no longer believe, no longer will I teach transactional forgiveness. But here's how it works. Let's say you say something nasty about me, true or not, you say something nasty about me, and as these things tend to happen, it goes around and it comes back to me and I hear about it, okay? Transactional forgiveness would say, well, Matthew 18, 15 says, you are now obligated, James, to go to whoever said that thing, confront them for having said it, and get them to repent so that you can forgive them so that the relationship can be restored. 
Transactional repentance or forgiveness would say, if they don't repent, then you go get a witness. If they still don't repent, then you take it to the elders. If they still don't repent, they should be excommunicated from the church. This is what transactional forgiveness teaches. In order for me to forgive you, you must come and apologize and repent for your sin. If you do not, we follow the course set in Matthew 18. Let's say there's the same scenario, except when I confront you, you actually repent. Right, so you say something about me, it goes around, it comes back, I hear about it, I come to you, I say, how dare you insult my dignity in thus and such a way? And you say, oh, I had a terrible lapse in judgment. I forgot how wonderful and honorific you were. Please forgive me. And you snot and tears and you're on your knees. And I go, you have been forgiven. Okay. What's occurred here is a transaction. Because sin always has a cost. So what we're saying is, when you sin against me, it takes something of value from me. And it takes something of value from you. When you come to me and repent, and I forgive you, what that does is it sets the scales back in balance. It's a way of making restitution even when there's no stealing, okay? Your repentance is like an offering. My forgiveness is a demonstration of my acceptance of your offering. This is transactional forgiveness. This is how I used to believe you keep human relationships online in the context of the local church. There's a problem with that. If there has to be a transaction, then that means, listen to me, Look right at me. If there has to be a transaction to bring the scales back into balance, that means that the only way I can forgive you is if you repent. It also means, if you follow the bouncing ball, that if I fail to come and demand your repentance, I'm now sinning. Right? Because Matthew 18, 15. So the first reason that I've come to reject the idea of transactional forgiveness is this, okay? This should be really easy for you. Let's just, everybody stand up who has successfully confessed every sin they've ever committed to God. And there's no, I would sit if I had a chair because none of us have. And all of us have the experience of God lovingly, kindly, mercifully, just overlooking transgressions. Like, we're not even aware of them. The psalmist would say, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If you actually listed them out for us, we would be overcome and overwhelmed. But God doesn't do that. There are many sins that you've committed against him that he hasn't even brought to your mind. But he's fully aware that they're there. So that gives me some idea that there may be sins between people which we should be able to just forget about and let go. Amen? Amen. All right. Second reason I've come to reject this idea of transactional forgiveness is that if we're honest in the application of the idea, then it actually becomes sinful to forgive someone who does not repent. So you sin against me, you don't repent, and I just decide to let it go. Now I've sinned. That's stupid. I have to have the option of just letting it go. 
Or this is never going to work because all we're going to do is sit around and talk about how we've injured one another. It'll be our full-time job as a church. The third reason that I've come to reject this idea of transactional forgiveness is what does Jesus command? Mark eleven twenty five. just listen, take my word for it, says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven also will forgive you. Now, where is the confrontation? Where is the repentance? It's not there. You're trying to have a relationship with your heavenly father. And it occurs to you in the midst of the activity of being in your Bible or praying or singing. You know what? I'm really irritated with Liz. And then you go, and I'm just going to let it go now. I'm going to forgive her for whatever she did. You haven't done anything. No, I'm perfect. I know. I love you so much. That's great. You will say, if you're more in line with the Pharisees, and it's okay if you are, because I was there for a long time, you will say, hold on a minute, James. There's other verses that say different stuff than Mark eleven twenty five, And I'll say, you are absolutely right. Let's go look at those. Luke 6, 27 says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who abuse you to the one who strikes you on the cheek. Offer the other also. And the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic from him either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So where's the restitution? Where's the payback? Somebody who's being slapped around, having their stuff stolen from them. I mean, Stephen the martyr, the first Christian martyr comes to mind. In the end of Acts chapter 7, while he's being pelted with stones, in the midst of it, he cries out and he says two things. First thing he says is, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The second thing he says is, Lord, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Where's the transaction? Where's their repentance? Saul is standing there nodding in approval to what's going on. And God's going to deal with him in a minute without Stephen confronting him. And then Luke 17. Let's turn there. This is worth seeing together. Luke 17, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, Forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. All right? This is the one you were hoping for, Pharisee. This is the one that says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Yes, that's the process. And if he repents, forgive him. But if he doesn't... Okay, well, let me ask you this. How does repentance look like that person doing the same thing seven times in one day? That's not repentance. So do you want to like, you want to pick one of these verses and be like, this is what I believe forgiveness looks like. Or can we just be honest and say, it's probably all of them is what forgiveness and repentance and dealing with personal injury looks like. And the fact of the matter is, if you can stand praying and you think of something that somebody did and you can just let it go, that's forgiveness. 
The fact of the matter is, there are situations where someone is being positively abusive towards you, and the most Christ-like thing that you can do is just absorb the injury and let it go. And the fact of the matter is, if somebody comes at you seven times, sins against you, actually apologizes after each time, come on, doubt, right, begins to enter your mind after the fourth or the fifth time. By the seventh, you're like, I don't believe a word that you're saying. You're not sorry. We've been here before. And you start to feel like, "Ah, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and say enough is enough. And I would just say to you, thank God he doesn't do that to us. Because there's not one sin I've committed against him in the last 20 years that was new. Where he's like, oh, I hadn't seen that one from James. Hasn't happened. Aren't there passages where Jesus is teaching us to forgive that are different? But at the end of the day, they're kind of all the same. And I want you to look right now back at verse 3 in Luke 17. How does that start? Oh, pay attention to yourselves. Look at me. Listen, this, that is what our passage this morning is about. This rich ruler has a servant, owes him tons of money. That guy has a servant buddy that owes him a little bit of money. Pay attention to yourself. That's the whole point of Matthew 18, 21 through 35. So let's go, because it's like, how long has it been? This is ridiculous. It's already been 33 minutes. That was my intro. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, we'll pick it up in 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him owed him who owed him 10,000 talents. I'm going to put this in simple terms as possible, so maybe you remember this. If you don't, it's okay. 10,000 talents would be about 150 years wages. Okay? So some of you are like, you've got some debt? Well, trust me, not like this guy. And if you do, we need to talk after service, all right? Um, 100 denarii, which is what the fellow servant owed him, down in 28, when he saw the... That, that, I'm sorry, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, seizing him, he began to choke him. That's about three months' wages. This, I mean, this sermon preaches itself, right? From this point on, I don't even have to say anything. What is the point? Well, if you've been forgiven 150 years of wages, and I mean, you're walking out from that experience. I just got forgiven all of it. Like, Your marriage just got saved because, you know, she was not happy with you for owing 150 years wages. Your kids just got saved because now they're not going to be sold into slavery. So you're walking away from that level of relief and you see somebody that owes you 20 bucks and you grab them by the shirt and you start choking them out and going, pay me what you owe me. It's ridiculous. Nobody would do that, right? Except, darn it, yes, we do. Because there are people in your heart and mind right now that you wouldn't talk to if you had to. And it's the same exact thing for us 
when we do that as it was this guy being forgiven all this debt and he turns around and can't show an ounce of grace towards somebody who owes him practically nothing. What's the problem? What motivates somebody to act like this? He doesn't appreciate what the master just did for him. Pay attention to yourself. If there's somebody that you're a little wrinkled up over right now, it's because you have forgotten how much you've been forgiven. All right, how do you let it go and forgive somebody without a transaction? Sometimes you can't and shouldn't. Sometimes there needs to be a conversation. Sometimes there needs to be a confrontation. You want to know how you know that there needs to be a confrontation and a conversation? And this is kind of subjective, so forgive me for not having a more concrete um, description. If you are practicing arguments in the shower, there probably needs to be a conversation. (laughs) If you find yourself just constantly irritated with how people have treated you, if you find yourself unwilling to look at, talk to, or be in the same room with somebody, there probably needs to be a conversation, and you need to pay attention to yourself. How much have you been forgiven? Does anybody... Does anybody in your mind have more sin than you? And the answer is no, because you may know a lot of someone else's sin. Like I know a lot of my kids' sins, but I know a lot more of my own. And I know what I've been forgiven. So when Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners, that's what he's talking about. I know more of my own sin than I know anybody else's. And I know some of y'all's business. I've been going through your mail. If you get to the place where you want to switch from God's economy of mercy, which is what you're in right now, you've been forgiven. If you want to switch from God's economy of mercy to God's economy of justice and get justice from somebody else that you think owes you something, let's just talk through, and I'm going to be done here in about two minutes. Let's talk through exactly what that looks like. How is it that we've been declared justified? What had to happen for the master to forgive you all that debt? Because he didn't just go, there, it's gone, don't worry about it. If you want justice from a fellow sinner, here's what I'm going to need you to do. We're going to need to go get Jesus, and we're going to need to beat him a few more times. If you want justice from another sinner, we're going to need to tighten that crown of thorn up on his brow and make him bleed into his own eyes a little bit more. We're going to need to watch him stand there and get whipped a little bit longer. We're going to need to make his cross a little bit heavier on the way to Calvary because apparently it wasn't heavy enough for you to get your justice. Then we're going to need him to hang there a little bit longer while the father turns his face away so that you can get your justice. Or, here's an idea. Maybe we could just let it go. Maybe we could pay attention to ourselves and how much we've been forgiven and then go forgive. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.